Good morning, everybody. Our ushers have Bibles if you need them, and the note sheets and pencils will be going around as well. Hopefully that'll be a help to you as you think about what we're studying today and as you consider these things throughout the week. We pray that the preaching that you receive on a Sunday morning is not just for the moment, but it's something that continues to enlighten you and encourage you and challenge you as you walk day by day in obedience to the Lord. So if those note sheets are an assistance to that, then we are happy to provide them. If not, you can put them to the side. We don't want them to be a distraction to you. Uh, And as Paul mentioned, we have lots to be distracted by this morning as the anticipation of wonderful street tacos lingers in the air. Uh, My son came up to me before uh, service started because we told him about lunch and how there's going to be tacos and things to drink. And he said, where's all the soda? Because uh, when we have uh, lunch and after church, he gets to drink soda. And so I said, listen, that's for after the church. Right now, let's be focused on the gathering of the saints and the worship of our Lord. Let's not be distracted. And we might remember the, uh, the Old Testament when the saints would bring in sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving, a sacrifice of repentance to the Lord. Then the smoke of that burnt offering would be like a beautiful aroma in the nostrils of God. Uh, but really what was beautiful to the Lord was not necessarily the, the, the physical, but the spiritual humility of heart, uh, the love that the people were showing in obedience to Him. So let our hearts and minds be fixed on the Lord and let that be a sweet aroma to Him today, especially as we put our eyes upon uh, the the Savior. Before we get into uh, our message this morning and and pray over the preaching of the Word, I do want to take a moment uh, to acknowledge that one of our own is going to be headed over to Africa in uh, just a few short days. Jill Devine is going to be joining a mission mission effort that's going out with with Julie, who we used to do missions to Haiti with. And uh, this is going to Zambia. There's a city there called Indola, and they're going to be sowing the seeds of a new outreach effort that will hopefully uh, bear great fruit for the the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be bringing six suitcases of teaching supplies over there. Um, Much of their efforts is going to be educationally based. They do have a full Bible curriculum that this school, this uh, Christian school, is going to try to start to implement. And so they're going to be training the teachers there in Zambia how to use this Bible curriculum. They're going to be delivering a a new printer for the school's computer so that they can print out uh, copies of the lesson. Right now they're working off a single book that they have to pass around in the school because the resources are so tight there. And so uh, please be in prayer uh, for for uh, Jill and for Julie and for the whole team that is going to be working with them there. I think their leader's name is Sam there in, uh, in Dola. And so pray for their community outreach. They're going to try to get into the community and, and uh, pray over the people that are there and see what kind of spiritual needs are, are present that can be met by the team. And for those of you who gave to her efforts, we're grateful for you. And so we're going to just take a minute and thank the Lord in prayer for that mission and ask him also to give us insight into the scripture as we dive into Hosea 1 this morning. Let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for what you do in our hearts and especially for the conviction that there is nothing greater that we could put our efforts and our time into than the praise and the worship of our glorious King. And so we thank you that Jill is uh, thinking about how she might be used uh, even beyond the, the borders of our own country, God, to reach some people for you. And so I pray that you would be with Jill and be with Julie, that you would pre- provide a safe pathway for them both there and back. They're going to be spending two weeks in that, in that area. And so I pray, Lord God, that 
you would even now be preparing other believers to come into contact with them and to establish some great connections with them so they might be of maximum use to you there. We're grateful that many of the people in Zambia speak English, and so there's not as much of a a language barrier, but they still will have uh, an interpreter there with them for those who don't. And so we pray, Lord God, that the Word of God, which is universal and true, would, would shine brightly to the people there, God. We pray that you would fortify especially those young hearts at the school that that they will be supporting and and encouraging Lord God that those children who are able to come and gather to gain knowledge would gain more than just math and arithmetic more than just writing skills more than just history or geography but that they would gain the knowledge of your son Jesus Christ and that it would be to many of them Lord salvation and so we pray God for that mission uh, to bear good fruit and we pray for a good report upon uh, Julie and Jill's safe return, God. Please bless their families as they are without them for two weeks, God. Help them to uh, trust in you and let our prayers continually go up in support of our sister. God, we pray also for our own hearts as we put our minds to your word today. Help us to be thankful, Father, for all that your word shows us and for the ways that it will definitely challenge us. God, we know that your great love for us is tremendous. And we think of the words uh, that you gave to us in your scripture where we're told, who are you that you would be mindful of us, Lord God? You, you put your thoughts and your cares upon sinful, rebellious people like us. And it is, it is a marvel, a wonder, Lord, that you would choose to care and choose to love us when really what we deserve as disobedient, rebellious souls is we deserve justice. We deserve your wrath. And yet, God, you allowed your wrath to fall upon your own son, Jesus Christ, so that those whom you call to yourself, those who call upon your name, Lord, would be redeemed and washed clean, that we might taste of your true love. And so I pray, God, that we would experience that even today as we think about the life and the ministry of Jose and this introductory lesson to this wonderful uh, minor prophet book that we're going to be reading and studying over the next several months. We love you, God, and trust that you will use it in good ways. Help us to rejoice in all the things that we learn about you and to determine in our hearts not to just let that be head knowledge, but to be also doers of the word and, and not just hearers of it. We love you and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, we're about to embark on a journey together through the Old Testament book of Hosea. So if you want to flip there to chapter 1, we're just going to read a little bit of that this morning as we begin this uh, series, which I have entitled The Faithfulness of God and praying over the content of this book and the main idea that needs to be communicated through this this message that God has preserved for His church. Uh, There are two things that really stand out. I, I, I believe that the unfaithfulness of God's people stands out in this book. We, we are given a picture of how far we fall short of the love that God deserves. But even greater than that, much greater than the unfaithfulness of man, in the book of Hosea shines the faithful love of the God who saves unfaithful man. But let's think about this word faithfulness. What does it mean? When we say a person is faithful, even more importantly, when we say that God himself is faithful, What are we saying? What are we communicating? The word carries first a more general sense, faithfulness does. And secondly, faithfulness carries a more specific sense. So look at both of those on your note sheet. Faithfulness is first the fact or quality of being true to one's word or commitments as to what one has pledged to do or professes to believe. 
That is faithfulness. So it is a, it is a steadfastness to what one has declared to endorse what one declares to believe in and to stand by. The ongoing support of that thing, the ongoing commitment and, and connection to that thing is expression of faithfulness. And secondly, in the more specific sense, faithfulness is lasting loyalty and trustworthiness in relationships, especially in the relationships of marriage and friendship. And so when we think about God being faithful, we see God not only as good at these things, but as the very essential essence of these things, that He is faithfulness Himself. And part of what led me to teach through this book was, was my concern that our modern world and the culture that we particularly are ministering in may not even have much of a concept of faithfulness anymore. I think we can really look to just two key areas of our society, though there are many proofs to this, many areas of our society where we could look, but let's just think of two of them this morning where we see faithfulness is an issue of grave concern for people in America, for, for non-believers and believers alike. Faithfulness is becoming more of an endangered species in America. And we see that just by looking at marriage and particularly how marriage ends. God's design for marriage is to end how? By death. By death. That when, when an individual dies, then that marriage commitment has been fulfilled for our vows are for life for one another. But, but the, the sinful heart of man has taken the gift of marriage, that covenant relationship, and has watered it down to where it is barely a shadow of what, what it was meant to be. I think sin in general is actually much more consistent from generation to generation than we would often think of it to be. We sometimes think about our own situation as the worst situation in history, when likely it's not. Man is, has not got a more sinful heart today than he did before, although the, the general graces of God sometimes allows sin to abound more in certain areas than, than it does in others. I think, But we often make the mistake of thinking that our time is the most sinful time there's always been violence. There has always been oppression of the weak. There has always been idolatry and wrongful worship as long as man has lived outside of the garden. But one area where we can see a measurable decline is in the growing lack of respect that people have for this godly institution of marriage, which cannot hope to survive without a commitment to faithfulness. From 1900, the turn of the last century, to 1925, just one quarter of a century, the divorce rate in America, according to statistics tabulated through the CDC, doubled from roughly 7% of marriages ending in divorce to 15% of marriages ending in divorce. Then from 1925 to 1970, that rate doubled yet again from 15% of marriages ending to divorce to right around 30%. Now, these numbers are very difficult to tabulate. The numbers themselves are taken in terms of how many marriages per 1,000 marriage end each year, but then in order to see how many marriages overall uh, end in divorce, it's a little bit more complicated to extrapolate. But there are several factors, we believe, that contributed to that increase in the divorce rate among Americans. First of all is the rise of the feminist uh, movement, and a drive for more equality in the workplace likely contributed to women feeling less like they needed to rely on the provisions of men. And because economic advantages allowed them to support themselves, 
they didn't often feel like marriage was now essential to them, which is a sad commentary on the heart because it means that many people were looking at marriage not as a holy commitment of love to one another, but only as an economic advantage. But beyond that, the focus was steadily shifting from the good of the family to the good of the self. The autonomous, independent mindset of the American has drifted farther and farther away of what is good for us, what is good for man, what is good for our families and for our society, and is ever more pointedly focused on what is good for me. How does this society exist to satisfy my needs and my desires, and what choices can I make to satisfy my own personal happiness? Now, while the divorce rate has not quite doubled since 1970, it has gone up substantially again. Estimators project that about 42% of marriages in the U.S. end in a breaking of vows, and there are sad underlying uh, factors to that as well. People believe that the advancement of the divorce rate is not necessarily because people are being more faithful in marriage, but that marriage is considered such a small thing these days that fewer and fewer people are actually getting married to begin with, that cohabitation is now dominating where marriage used to be the cultural norm. Marriage is unarguably one of the most important promises that we make in our lives, and the increasing willingness to dissolve that promise indicates that people are not as committed to commitment as they once were. So this is one of the evidence, I believe, that our culture needs to learn and dwell on this idea of faithfulness. Secondly, I think it's work. And our culture's idea of what labor is really all about. I was at a wedding just recently. Um, Eileen and Sean's son, Adrian, uh, got married to Savannah. And as I was sitting there at one of the tables with Paul Devine, we were speaking about his job. He works for IBM. He is a technician, a service technician for massive computer systems. And uh, this year in September, he will be selling, celebrating his 45th year with IBM. Now that is a long time, and especially considering that the average American today will change professions 12 different times in the course of their life. 12 different times. I asked Paul if he thought he would make it to 50 years, and he says, I hope I don't have to. <laughs> He's ready to, ready to retire from that if he can, and when the opportunity affords itself, I'm sure he will jump at that, but 45 years in one place says something. It says something about commitment. It says something about longevity and steadfastness. There is no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure that Paul could attest to that, that it has not been an easy 45 years, that there have been struggles and the company has gone through waves of change and drastic shifts in culture while he was there. And he's witnessed that, but he's also stayed with the company through that. The day of the lifelong company man may be far behind us, though, for this is becoming rarer and rarer in our sight. And that's not all on the worker either. Businesses are far less committed to their labor force today as well, often finding unethical ways to replace older, more expensive workers with younger, less expensive, and less experienced workers. This contributes to rarity of long work tenures as well. Now, while there's certainly nothing in Scripture that says a Christian has to stay at the same job for the bulk of their life, 
this condition is a picture of the general mindset that people in our culture have today. Work is no longer a means to supply what the family needs and to be a breadwinner. Work is now the way that I find my personal fulfillment. And if I don't like my job, then I tend to shop around for a different job. At least that is the mindset of the culture we live in. That idea that if a condition is not optimally meeting my personal felt needs, that the natural course of action is to walk away and find something that I like better, it tells a story of the lack of faithfulness in man's heart. I bet I'd be very sad if someone did a similar survey to see the average length of membership at Christian churches today as well. You know, how many times people bounce from one congregation from, to another to another. I have no doubt the exchange of commitment for expediency would be reflected there as well. Now, while many have <clears throat> struggled to be faithful, the recent trend is to even resent the idea of faithfulness altogether. Because faithfulness is so tied to truth, and because our culture is shifting towards this slippery slope of believing truth to be something relevant to the individual, faithfulness itself seems like an impediment to personal ex uh, expression of who I am and what I desire. We hear again and again that mantra, to thine own self be true, which is a distortion of truth because truth is not something that begins in the self. Truth is something outside of the self to which we cling because it has a value that is bigger than us. Because faithfulness is not driven by pragmatism, but by ideals and by something greater than our felt needs. Because faithfulness is not driven by economic advantage or what is useful in the moment, faithfulness has be become, in some ways, uh, uh, an enemy to the individual's thinking of freedom. The world that we live in proves to us in increasingly vivid ways that God is holy. That is, God is set apart from us. He is not like us. He is fundamentally unique from man. His ways and his thoughts do not follow the pattern of man's thinking and man's doing. And so in Deuteronomy and, and throughout the course of Hosea, we will peek back at Deuteronomy many times. Uh, most commentators see a great parallel between the work that Moses did in writing down Deuteronomy, preparing the people of Israel to enter into the Holy Land, and the work that Hosea is doing essentially on the back end of that, warning the Israelites that because of their lack of faithfulness to the covenant, they are now going to be exiled from the Holy Land. Uh, so let me, let me show you a verse from Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Think about that for a moment. We see a commitment to truth and to the ideal of what God is. God is God. So he is faithful to the things that make him everlasting and unchanging. But there's also that element of relationship there. That when God covenants with a people, when he comes near to them in a specific relational way, that he will remain tied to those people. God is faithful. But here is something else we must not fail to understand. This faithful God is a God specifically of covenant. A God of covenant. God chooses again and again to interact with man in terms of contractual commitments. He builds specific, clear kinds of relationships with human beings. 
Relationships that come with boundaries and expectations. Relationships that cannot function properly without a real commitment to faithfulness. Hosea, the prophet, is a man used of God to communicate to Israel and to Judah and to you and to me that faithfulness is crucial and there is no one faithful like the Lord our God. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Hosea chapter 1, I'm just going to start us off with one simple verse today. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now to get a sense for the message that Israel is bringing, it is valuable to first establish a, a historical backdrop that gives the message context. We see her right away in this very first verse that Hosea was not a short-timer in prophecy. He ministered through a time when Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, went through four different kings. Now in the northern kingdom, there was one king through that whole time, but at some point during uh, Hosea's ministry as prophet, that king is going to lose his throne as well. Hosea's prophecy is delivered to God's people, <clears throat> but God's people are not a unified whole as God reveals this message to his prophet. See, Hosea does not mark the beginning of Israel's struggles with faithfulness. This is a generational problem that has gone on for literally a couple hundred years. Originally, Israel was comprised of 12 tribes unified under one God. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant that we read about in Genesis 12 lays the foundation for this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the Lord that I will show you, <clears throat> to the land that I will show you, rather. Now I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see God, of all his own initiative, approaching <laughs> the Shekinah glory is going off behind me. The God of creation is approaching Abraham, who is a man of faith, and basically declaring to him, because you love me, and because you want to know me, I'm going to establish this relationship with you, a relationship that is bound by, by framework, a relationship that is bound by promises, that is outlined by not only blessings that will come from operating a certain, uh, a certain specific way with God, but also curses that will happen if, if Abraham and the people that he's going to make out of Abraham do not follow along in that prophecy or that, uh, that covenant framework. <clears throat> this covenant advanced through the Mosaic covenant that was brought about later and added to the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is foundational to both the Mosaic covenant, which adds to the initial covenant, the initial promise, uh, the framework of civil, ceremonial, and moral law. And then after the Mosaic covenant, which taught the people of, of Israel how to be a people of Israel, God brought to them the Davidic covenant, which showed them how to be an independent nation with leadership that reflected the glory of God. God said, I will give you a king. And from the seed of David, this king that was in many ways like Abraham, loving God and having faith in him, from him I will bring the seed of a new king, one who will last forever, one who will never be replaced. And so these covenants were 
a very important structure, a detailed structure by which the people of God were supposed to interact with God himself. But the end of King Solomon's reign, Solomon was the son of David, the end of his reign around 930 B.C. marked a monumental crack in the faithfulness of Israel on a, on a national level. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we note a sad change in tone of Israel's national dependence, uh, national depends upon God. The chapter begins by describing the critical error that King Solomon made by marrying great many wives from foreign nationality. These wives came to Israel, but they brought with them, imported with them, a sense of awe and reverence for gods who are not gods. They brought their cultural religions with them. And then Solomon, not only compromising by marrying people who had no faith in God, compromised further by then adapting portions of their systems of false worship and integrating them with his own worship of Yahweh. This is a very clear and chronic failure of faithfulness as Solomon is showing us in one man a display of adultery against the worship of the true God. The chapter goes on to explain in, in 1 Kings chapter 11 how God ordained a punishment for his faithfulness on the part of King Solomon. Or for the faithlessness on the part of King Solomon, sorry. Uh, a capable Israelite by the name of Jeroboam is approached by the prophet Ahijah. And he's given a message from the Lord that upon the death of the king, that judgment would begin to come and the kingdom would be torn from Solomon's son, a man named Rehoboam. So Rehoboam takes over after his dad Solomon passes away. Uh, this prophet Ahijah approaches Jeroboam. He takes his cloak from him. He tears it into 12 pieces. And then he hands back 10 of the pieces to Jeroboam. And he says that 10 of the tribes of Israel will be granted to Jeroboam. And this will comprise the northern kingdom of Israel. Only two of those kingdoms would remain under the control of Rehoboam and the successive kings that would follow after him. That would become known as the kingdom of Judah. Now, an important note, Jeroboam, the man who would initiate this kingdom split and would lead the ten tribes of the north, was an Ephraimite. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, you will notice that throughout the book of Hosea, the prophet refers to the northern kingdom, typically called Israel, as Ephraim. And this title is not only in reference to the tribe of Ephraim, but it is a historical reminder that their division began with an Ephraimite king. So when you see Hosea mention Ephraim, he's mentioning the northern kingdom. By the time of Hosea's ministry, the divide between the northern and the southern kingdoms has persisted for almost 200 years. Over that period of time, God has spoken to both of his peoples, the north and the southern peoples, through prophets. While both the northern and the southern kingdoms have struggled to keep the, the covenants that God has made with them, the north has drifted more quickly than the south. The reason for this more rapid decline in the north, ironically, it's due to the same kind of unfaithfulness that had caused Solomon to lose most of his kingdom in the first place. The lingering presence of people in the land of Canaan, people that God had declared that his people, upon taking the land, were supposed to drive out of the land, and not allowed to mingle and intermarry with them, these lingering people began to water down the worship of Yahweh, particularly by their pagan worship practices and their religious uh, reverence towards false gods. King after king took the throne. Some were marginally faithful. Others were outwardly wicked and opposed to the covenant. And over time, the people of the northern kingdom grew colder and colder to the promises that they had made to God. 
They needed a word. They needed someone to remind them who God had made them to be. And that message will come by way of the prophet Hosea. Now, we are only looking at the first verse of chapter 1 today, but we see here some significant details about um, the word that Hosea has to deliver to the people of Israel. First of all, we discover that this is not a man's message. Here, declared plainly in the very first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. That's what we will be studying. We're not going to be studying a whole bunch of Hosea's ideas or philosophies. We're not going to study his strategy on getting Israel back on track. We're going to be studying the word of the Lord that is delivered to the people of God through the prophet of God, Hosea. Whatever part Hosea plays in this dramatic call to faithfulness, the message is not his own message. In the period of the Old Covenant, when God would speak, he typically chose to speak through a man, an intermediary, what we might call a mediator. And we see that uh, confirmed in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, where it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the days that we are in now, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So the progressive revelation that came to us, which made up the New Testament came through the life and the ministry of Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection proclaimed through the apostles that he trained to bring that message into the world. Does that mean that the message of the prophets is now wiped out? It absolutely does not mean that. But it does mean that there was a shift. You see, the prophets had been a conduit through which God's message flowed. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophetic office. He was not just a continuation of it. The message of God not only flowed through Jesus, it was made complete in him. He is, in a sense, the word, the logos, the very living word and message of God. So in a fundamental way, every prophet's message had been given in anticipation of the redeeming work that Jesus would do. The second verse of the chapter speaks to this form of communication as well, speaks to prophecy. Hosea 1-2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. So how does God use his prophet? He uses his prophet to speak through to the people. He is a conduit of sorts. The prophet served as a channel through which the Lord would communicate his truth. In this case, Hosea was called to be an active voice to declare the things of God to the northern kingdom. Because that is the case, the message Hosea had to deliver was not open to debate. It was not a soft invitation from the Lord. It was a divine communication that carried definite implications. So turn with me for a moment to chapter 18 of Deuteronomy in your scriptures. I had mentioned earlier that this, this important book is going to play a big part in, uh, in our understanding of Hosea, but it also gives us a great bedrock foundation for which we are to understand the working of the prophets and how God uses these men uh, to glorify himself. By the 18th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing the people for their eventual conquest of the Holy Land that God had promised to Abraham initially. So the Abrahamic covenant is a foundation upon which the covenant of uh, the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant would eventually flow. So here in Deuteronomy 18, we are seeing that the Mosaic covenant is being added to the Davidic or to the uh, Abrahamic, and they are about to put that into practice by taking a land that will be their own. The nation was to function in very particular ways as God's chosen and holy people. So Moses is lining out some of the characteristics that are to define the people of God. He begins the chapter 
by explaining the duties of the Levites. The Levites were a particular tribe among the 12 who were specifically designated to facilitate the worship of Yahweh. They were to help people to not only follow laws, but to love the Lord God and to show reverence to Him. Now, he is careful to reiterate the fact that God insisted the Israelites drive out the pagan peoples of the land that they were about to inherit. And if you were to read the first part of Deuteronomy 18, you would see that. We don't have time to go into all of that this morning. But to fail to do so, to fail to push those pagan people out and to make this God's holy land would create a dangerous compromise whereby the people of God would be tempted to integrate their own holy life with the godless ways of life of the people who formerly ruled the land. So now Moses is drawing a line of distinction between the way that his covenant people were to live their lives and how the rest of the world was content to live their lives. One of the ways that God guides and provides for his people was through these Levites. But he also had plans to raise up future prophets for this purpose. And so Moses declares, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 18, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired the, of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. So let's pause there for a second. Essentially what's going on here is that the intense nature of interacting with God's supernatural holiness was intimidating for the people. It was more than they could really handle on a regular basis. They were too afraid to receive his instructions in that way. This was in some ways a good thing because the nation of Israel needed to have a holy fear for the Lord. They needed to be reverent before him. And you can tie a lot of their, their failures to a lack of that holy fear later on. Because of the initial healthy fear of the Lord being appropriate among them, God in his kindness determined to speak to them through a mediator, through a prophet. So Moses goes on to say in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Whose words? God's words, right? And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now the words that the prophet will declare are not their own words. They are the words God puts into their mouths. I love that vivid imagery there, that there's a close connection with the Lord God to his mediator, that he is going to feed the very words that they are to say to the people. The message they communicate cannot be edited. It cannot be shortened. Half of the truth would not proved to be enough to be considered the truth. The prophet's message was not his own message, and so it was critical that he delivered it in its entirety and that he do it exactly in the manner that God commanded him to deliver it. Now, you might recall some, some ironic history here that the Holy Land, which God had promised to his covenant people that Moses was preparing the people to enter into, was a prize that Moses himself never got to enjoy. In Numbers 20, 
God had told Moses how to miraculously provide water for the people of God in the wilderness. They were in in an arid place. They needed to drink. There was nothing available for them. The people were grumbling and complaining, and they had very little faith in Moses' leadership. Moses goes to the Lord and cries out to him, what do I do? And God instructs his prophet. He says, you and Aaron are to go before the people, and you're going to take the staff, the holy staff that I've given to you as a supernatural sign of my favor and authority upon you, and you're to hold it up. And you're to speak to the rock at Merida. And as you speak to that rock, it's going to bring forth the water that the people need. That was his command. You are going to go and you're going to demand the rock bring forth water. Now, rocks don't usually randomly bring forth water. So this is obviously a supernatural intervention on God's part to preserve his people. Moses obeyed, mostly. He took his staff to the place that he was commanded to go to. And in the presence of the grumbling and the complaining people, he rebuked them for their lack of faith before striking the rock twice, causing water to miraculously flow from it. Mission accomplished, right? Not quite. Moses was not told to strike that rock. The message he was to deliver to the people was supposed to be a word of authority, not an act of force. And Moses' modification of the message was met with a stern rebuke from Yahweh. Numbers 20, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Notice that language there. The prophet was to exercise belief in God. And they were to do that in a very physical, tangible way, by adding or subtracting nothing from the message that God had given to them. So this is part and parcel of the nature of prophetic writings, which is what we're going to be really dealing with in the next several months as we work through this message that Hosea has to give. Here's some other characteristics that go along with this idea of the message being specifically God's word. Prophetic utterances are not playful. The prophetic writings carried much weight with them. And we'll often cut through the man's fanciful imaginations of what God is in order to root him in a more accurate and often humbling understanding of who God is and what he demands of his people. So the, the, the prophet was not a stand-up comedian. He was not an entertainer. He was a man of sovereign reverence. And he came before the Lord God's authority with a contrite heart. And so the people were to receive prophecy not as a suggestion or as some kind of contingent wisdom, but as the very direct words of God. Prophecy often contains an element of what is to come. So there's a future aspect to prophecy many of the times that God gives it. So as the people of Israel were led out of their bondage in Israel by a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night, God used prophetic revelation to point His covenant people in the direction God wanted them to go. Sometimes these prophecies of the future were promises of blessing. God had told them, you will receive a land. You don't have a home right now, but I'm going to make a home for you. Your descendants will be like the sands on the seashore, Abraham. You don't have a family right now beyond you and Sarah but I'm going to give you offspring. And the offspring that flows from that offspring is going to be more than you could even hope to number. So some of these future promises are of blessing. But sometimes the prophet would come and deliver stern warnings and rebukes 
pointing to not only the blessings of the covenant arrangement, but also the curse and the consequence that would come when those who are called into this relationship ignored it and lived how they wanted to live instead of living in the order that God had caused them to covenant to him. Prophecy contains an element of what to come. Prophecy often contains an element also of what came before. God has always had a redemptive plan for Israel, and he makes use of his prophets to assure that people that he is unfolding that plan of redemption according to his will. God has never been at a loss for how to save his people or how to preserve them. From the very moments in the garden after Adam and Eve committed the first sin and caused all of humanity to fall, we have a, a, a slight picture, right? That there will be a resolution to sin one day. That man will not be banished from the presence of God forever. That the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent, the tempter who brought sin into creation, will crush him with his foot, and then he will bruise the heel of that Savior. And this, of course, is a picture of the Messiah who would come and take great punishment and endure great hardship and pain on our behalf so that the work of Satan would be undone. So God never lets historic work go to waste. This is part of the reason why we're spending time in the Old Testament book of Hosea for the foreseeable future. It's quite an investment. When I think about what I want to preach next, it's, I'm always torn because there's so much of God's word that I want to deliver to you. There's so much that I want to get in and study for myself. There's so much that I want to meditate upon and, and spend my time and your time and resources getting into and, and digesting. But we're in this Old Testament book right now because as the redeemed people of God, every word that our Savior has to communicate should be precious to us. And every work that He has done to bring His covenant people to where they are today should have personal significance to the believer. The church will never unhitch from the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament right, you will see that the Old Testament is ever pointing forward to the completed work of Christ. And we're going to see Hosea as just that. In many ways, it is a projection of the amazing love that God gives to his church by sending Jesus as Messiah. So the prophecies of God's prophets would point forward. They would also point backward. Prophecy will always, no matter what it's pointing to, will always be true and accurate. Will always be true and accurate. As we read in Deuteronomy, and if you say in your heart, how, we may, how may we know that the, word of the, that the Lord has, uh, that the word that the Lord has not spoken? Uh, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Friends, there are times when the covenant communicates a contingency, i.e., the prophet would say, if you do not repent, then this will happen. In those instances, there will, of course, appear to us to be two potential paths forward. From the divine perspective, however, there is only ever one path, and it is known entirely by God. When a prophet declared a future that did not materialize, that meant destruction for that prophet. It was not a minor offense. And until that death, the prophet was to be seen as powerless, not as an agent of God, not wielding the authority of God that had been granted to them, but as a man with nothing but hot air in his lungs. This is a problem with the modern notion of prophecy today that seeps into churches. As people would like to think that the church still wields the power of being able to deliver the very words of God. But apart from the scripture, which is the established and codified word of God, bringing new revelation would put one into the same life and death burden of proof 
that people like Hosea and Moses were under. So the next time somebody says, I have a word from the Lord for you, caution them. Say, wait, 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 hold on. Do you know what kind of serious restrictions you're putting upon yourself if you claim to speak in the name of the Lord? Because in the Old Testament, if it wasn't from the God, uh, from the, God of the heavens and the earth, if somebody spoke words and said, this is from God and it wasn't his words, that came with condemnation. So these prophets carried a big burden. They carried the burden of sharing with the people exactly what God desired for them to hear. Acting within this prophetic tradition, Hosea will call the northern kingdom specifically to a repentance. He will point back to the faithful love of God, which should in every way drive the Israelites to honor and to obey the Lord. God had had no reason initially to make Israel his covenant people. He created them out of nothing. He basically took a people who were not a people and made them a force in the world. And so that generous love poured out upon the people should cause those who call themselves the people of God to want to obey the covenant. Hosea is also going to communicate the consequences and the sanctions that are going to befall that northern kingdom at the hand of their God if they refuse to repent and return to the terms of the covenant that they had been neglecting. Despite the sincerity of the call, God knows full well that in the unfolding of his will, the northern kingdom is not going to repent. Hosea is not going to win the day by convincing his brothers to turn back to the Lord. Shortly, the northern kingdom will come to an abrupt end, and that's going to happen at the hands of the growing Assyrian Empire. You might say, well, what's the point of all of this? Well, God has much to teach us and to show us. When we consider the Old Testament canon, the widely accepted list of of books that we were examined and determined that were examined and determined to belong in the holy collection of God's words to Israel, we see that the prophetic works were broken down into two larger sections. You have what is often referred to as the major prophets. You've got Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, his book Lamentations, you've got Ezekiel, you've got Daniel. And then you have a a series of 12 smaller books called the Minor Prophets. Now the Minor Prophets consisted of 12 shorter declarative accounts of God's word to the nations of Israel and Judah. The Minor Prophets are often overlooked for a number of reasons. How many of you all have studied diligently the Minor Prophets and consider it your favorite part of the scripture. A lot of Christians just don't even read this section of the Old Testament, and it's a shame. People often think they're not as important because of the amount that these prophets wrote. They're called minor, not because their content is less important, but because these prophets simply wrote less than the prodigious pens of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. They are often considered uh, secondary because of the specific nature of some of the targeted prophecies. Some people pick up the book of Obadiah, for instance, and they say, what does this have to do to me? It's really about one nation doing the wrong thing and God preparing them for the judgment that's going to come because of their wretchedness. And so people think, well, because it's not written specifically about me, then I probably don't need to really pay a lot of attention to it. But think about the selfish stance that that comes from. That is a reflection of that cultural self-centeredness that we spoke about earlier. God's word is not only to Moab or to the Perizzites or to whoever this prophecy of woe is coming upon. God's word is to us to see as well. And when we see God condemning another nation for their unrighteousness, we see the power and the justice of our Lord displayed and we should rejoice in that. 
Some people overlook the minor prophets because in the course of worship that happened in the synagogues through to the time of Christ, the minor prophets were often used less frequently in the synagogue uh, patterns of worship. And so they didn't get memorized as much. However, this does not mean that the minor prophets are anything less than the important and, and uh, inspired word of God. The New Testament writers did not ignore this part of the Old Testament for sure. Of the 12 books that we have in the canon of the, the minor prophets, all but the smallest book, Obadiah, which is only like one chapter long, all of them are quoted or explicitly referenced by the New Testament authors. So they saw the minor prophets as the inspired and important and powerful word of God. This is every bit God's revelation, and we should treat it as such. It should not be overlooked. Hosea is the first of these 12 minor prophet books. And in many ways, the theme of Hosea sets the tone for the 11 that follow it. The unfaithfulness of man contrasted to God's perfect faithfulness in some ways characterizes what might best describe what is sometimes referred to the book of the 12, these 12 minor prophets. Now, Hosea being the first, who is Hosea? I wish I could give you an extensive background on this man. I wish I could tell you tons of details about him. But really, all we know of Hosea comes from the writings of Hosea himself. We know that his name means salvation. It is a derivative of otherwise what we would know as the name Joshua or Jesus. And his father's name was Beery, which means my well. Uh, we don't know anything about his dad. We basically know very, very little about the history of Hosea before he came to prophesy. What we do know from watching his prophecy and from what he declares to us is that he was an obedient man. Starting next week, you're going to see some of the things that God called Hosea to do. And they were things that many of us would shrink back from and say, how could I possibly be expected to do that, O oh God? Yeah. Hosea was charged with a very, very difficult kind of ministry. A ministry that pervaded every aspect of his being. Hosea was not one who could leave the work at the office. His whole life became, in many ways, a message of this warning that he was giving to the people of Israel. So he was obedient to follow through with it. He was a humble man. He doesn't speak a lot about himself, and he doesn't try to draw attention to himself. And yet, at the same time, he's very bold in proclaiming the things that God told him to proclaim. He's a man of faithfulness himself, having served God for something like 40 years in prophecy. And in fact, the book of Hosea should probably best be read as an assembly of the many works of Hosea through the work of his tenure in, 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 uh, in prophecy. He was a contemporary of two other prophets, Isaiah and Amos, two men who also preached against the sinfulness of the northern kingdom. But we don't have any indication that there was interaction between these prophets necessarily. Though their messages are similar in general, they are unique in particular. Their content touches on specific things that are unique from one another. And they were preached mostly successively and not concurrently at the same time. What stands out about this prophet is the degree to which God's loving faithfulness is put on display in his personal life. Now, if you saw the, the, uh, the slide, the teaser that I put there just earlier, and you read past the part that I read past, there's some grown-up words that are used when we describe the ministry of Hosea. And we're not going to shrink away from that. We're going to talk about Hosea and how he married a woman of ill repute, a woman who would go on to, to behave not as a married and faithful wife, but as a prostitute. And God knew this would happen, 
and directed Hosea in that direction. And so as he took on this challenging role, Hosea, in a sense, becomes a picture of Christ. He bears the image of God's faithful love to the church. He is like a sign pointing forward to a Messiah who would say, I will love you despite the fact that you love me poorly. I will love you despite the fact that you commit adultery against me and you turn away from me. That is God's love for his church. Don't forget throughout the whole Testament, God refers to Israel as his bride. And into the New Testament, the church is considered the betrothed of the bridegroom. So think of those two images as you look at how God uses Hosea and his broken and hurting marriage to illustrate to the people how God will not give up on those to whom he has drawn into covenant. Hosea is a message to two peoples. It is a message of admonition and woe that was to come upon the people of the north. And so it is primarily pointed to them. Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel at that time, but he would prove to be their last as their autonomy, their independence, was about to be stripped away by the advancing power of the Assyrian Empire. So Hosea's message concerning the northern kingdom addresses their leaders. It talks not so much about the kings as the priests and the false prophets. Those mouthpieces of God who were to facilitate the worship of Yahweh had failed their post. Even with a king who is lacking, if your priests and your prophets are doing what is right, then you can still have a very faithful contingent of the people. But when those who are in leadership begin to lead the people the wrong way, then many people think they're doing what is holy when in actuality they're sidestepping the terms of the covenant. Hosea is going to address the political adultery committed by the northern kings who, in their pursuit of military stability and peace against oncoming threats such as Assyria, would look past God and try to make alliances with earthly powers such as Egypt, which God had explicitly told them never to do. They were forsaking God as their protector and their provider. And so we will get a picture of the righteously jealous God who says, you will not treat anyone like you're to treat me. You are not to depend on anyone like you're to depend upon me. Hosea's message concerning the northern kingdom also addresses their capital. Now, when the two kingdoms split, we spoke about this at uh, length earlier, the northern kingdom no longer had control of Jerusalem, which is a very important city to the Jews. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have that city of David as a place where they could gather together and give offerings and sacrifice. They ideally should have humbled themselves and continued to obey the command of God to worship in that specific place because it was covenantly commanded of them. But in their pride, because of the political implications, they decided we're not going to go down to Jerusalem to worship we're going to make Samaria our capital, and we're going to establish high places of worship here for ourselves where we can offer sacrifices, and we don't have to go over into the southern kingdom and humble ourselves before them. Hosea's message concerning the northern kingdom, therefore, also addresses their illegitimate places of worship. To keep their people from traveling to Jerusalem, they put together places such as Bethel. And Bethel was a place that began as a, a place for worship of Yahweh but quickly devolved into a place where multiple false gods were worshipped alongside the one true and holy God. Gods such as Baal and Asheroth were lifted up as equals to Yahweh, when in fact they were nothing but the creation of man's own hands. You might recall a hint of this in the Gospel of John. 
where the woman at the well says, Sir, I perceive to you, uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. As a Sumerian, she's probably pointing to Bethel. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In Bethel, they would even craft a golden calf, which if you know anything about the history of Israel, harkens back to the great travesty that happened when Moses was bringing the Ten Commandments down from the holy mountain of Sinai and how people had devolved into idol worship there. So again, sin is not a new thing. Sin has continually reared its ugly head throughout every generation of believers. And we see shadows and types of it uh, coming to pass in each successive generation. But this is vividly connected to the failure of Israel to remain faithful to God, even though he was the one who saved them. The only God who has the power to speak through his prophets and to actually communicate to Israel. Baal is no God. Asherah is no God. He's the invention of people. She is a goddess of make-believe, but the one true God, Yahweh, is the only one that we must worship. The northern tribes were not the only ones, though, who needed to hear from God. So the primary focus of Hosea's message is northerly. There's also a southerly component to this. It is also an urgent message to the people of the south, to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, that they might avoid the same fate that Israel is dooming themselves with. See, there's always an Assyria of some kind ready to pounce on the people of God. After a, a couple of hundred years, it wasn't Assyria anymore. It was a, an empire named Babylon. And then later on, Babylon would be displaced by the Medes and the Persians. And after the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks would come in. There is always a people who is eager to overcome the people of God if they have opportunity to do so. And in just a few generations, that Babylonian empire would be knocking on the door of Judah. Would they listen to their brothers and sisters in the north? Would they see the pain and anguish they caused themselves by disobeying the covenant? Or would they repent and, and would they turn from their, their wicked ways? The south would hear and the south would see the same prophecies that God delivered to the north. And they would actually benefit from that example for about 150 years. But there is, of course, a third party that we don't want to end without mentioning, and that's the party that's sitting here today. Hosea's message goes to the northern kingdom, it goes to the southern kingdom, but it also rests heavy upon our hearts, friends. Do we love the Lord God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, and our strength? More importantly, do we understand the depth of His great love that He has for us? We didn't love the Lord God first. The Lord God found a wretched people like us and determined to love us. And as we read through the book of Hosea, we're going to get a picture of that beautiful and committed, steadfast love that is so rare in the world today. And with that rareness in the world, with faithfulness going by the wayside, be encouraged, church. If you, as the faithful people of God, will love in the way that God loves, then you will stand out as a light shining in the darkness. We pray that the study of Hosea will help us to understand our role, how we are to live according to the covenant, the new covenant uh, that is made in Christ's blood that he has given to us that makes us a people set apart for his great name.
Let's pray, have a word. We're going to pray for our food as well that we're about to enjoy together. And then after prayer, we're going to invite our worship team back up on stage. We'll close with a song and a benediction, but let's bow our heads together. God, we thank you for your grace. And we know, Lord, that you are good. And that every word that you speak is of eternal benefit to us, Lord. The heavens and the earth, they will pass away, but your word will last forever. And so help us, God, to take these things into heart and into mind. I pray that uh, this congregation would take it upon themselves to read through the book of Hosea a couple of times in preparation for this study and for this, uh, this time of meditation on your word. Let us, God, be led in the proper ways by your spirit. I pray that uh, myself and Paul and any of our other brothers who may preach in this, uh, this mode would do so faithfully, God, that we would not allow our personal perspectives or our ideas to in any way interfere with what is right and good what you have determined for your people to hear. So God, help us to understand, help us to live obediently to what we have come to understand. We are grateful for you. We're thankful for fellowship. Help us, God, to enjoy the time that we get to spend with one another as we leave this place out into the courtyard. Um, Help us, God, to enjoy a great meal by the hand of brothers and sisters who wanted to be a blessing to us today. We pray, God, that our conversations with them would be sweet as well. May you continue to grant your people with joy in light of the gospel promises that you will surely fulfill. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.